0: Kia ora. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to a 2016 festival podcast proudly powered by Spark. The lofty Australian Peter Garrett has strode many a stage, whether as frontman for the band Midnight Oil, Labour Party minister or environmental and social justice campaigner. In the past, he has argued that Australia would be transformed if music were at its centre. His memoir, Big Blue Sky, provides the starting point for a conversation with Greenpeace Executive Director Russell Norman about more personal transformations, staying staunch in the morass of Australian politics. We hope you enjoy this session. Tēnā koutou kato. Uh, Thank you very much uh, for coming along today. Uh, my name is Russell Norman. Uh, I'm the Executive Director of Greenpeace Aotearoa. Uh, and our special guest today is Peter Garrett, uh, who's published a new book. For your first book. One of the things um, I remember growing up uh, with the, before the world of internet and, and all the rest of it, um, was how do you find out about alternative ideas um, and different ideas? And one of the ways you find out uh, back then and still now, but particularly back then, uh, was through popular culture and music. Um, and uh, so, of course, there were there were artists like Bob Dylan who um, I came across, but uh, growing up in Brisbane, um, as I did, uh, in the northern suburbs of Brisbane, um, there wasn't uh, a lot of exposure to alternative ideas uh, except through music, um, and because of the, um, the, the fact that Midnight Oil uh, was able to become incredibly popular because it was great music, uh, but it also had great messages inside it, uh, and so that really had a big impact on me and my generation. Um, and the fact that you were able to, um, that that that, that Midnight Oil was able to influence, I think, the the consciousness um, of of a generation of people, I think, um, was a, a lasting legacy of all of that work. So, Peter Garrett, of course, is the the former front person for Midnight Oil, uh, former minister for the environment, minister for education. Um, an environmental activist, former president of the Australian Conservation Foundation, and I didn't know this until, um, until I was doing the research for this, uh, had been on the board of Greenpeace International um, for a couple of years as well. Um, so there's it's quite a lot of connections. Um, so what we thought we'd do is um, just to go to have, a, have a bit of a conversation, and if there's time at the end, we'll do some questions, but we'll just um, see how it goes. So I thought where I'd start was um, with um, the question of Aboriginal representation um, within your music. Um, one, of the, one of the kind of enduring myths of, of white Australia, um, kind of one of the myths of, of our, our civilization, if you like, our creation myths was about the Bushmen and the outback. And if you've ever read um, the work of Banjo Patterson or or poets like that, it's all about mythologising the the bushman in the outback. And even though Australia is one of the most urbanised nations in the world, um, that was part of the creation myth of white Australia. And I I always thought one of the interesting dimensions of what Midnight Oil did, both in the the lyrics and in the videos especially, um, was put Aboriginal people in that position in a very positive light. And it always struck me as a very powerful way to take one of those very powerful myths, and turn it to quite a productive and constructive use to deal with the issues around um, relationships between Aboriginal people and, and the, the colonising um, civilisation. And, and I always wondered, and this is my, my first question, I'm getting there, I always wondered um, whether that was a conscious thing, um, whether you kind of thought about it like that, um, and, and whether, whether you deliberately, I guess, set out to, to uh, set it up like that.
1: Uh, look, it's a good question, Russell, and I think the simple answer is that um, Midnight All was an unfolding experience of people who, we were a bunch of uh, musicians that really loved to play together, and out we went uh, to play the songs that in the first instance um, the guys had been writing before I joined the band, Rob Hurst and Jim Eugenie. and then along with our manager, Gary Morris, we decided that we would try and kind of do the thing literally... It was Sinatra, you know, in a in, uh, black T-shirt and blue jeans. We were going to do it our way. Right. <laughs> and ev- eventually um, we got our head above water and we were asked to go uh, and contribute, actually, a song at the time in Australia when um, Ezrock Uluru and Katatuda were handed back to the traditional owners. And uh, the Pichinjara uh, and other Aboriginal people there had a very... Um, smart lawyer and a smart chair person, and they said, "Why don't we get Mid Idol to do a song for us?" And out of that experience, we then went and toured um, in those remote regions, and we built a relationship with people that we didn't know that well. And I grew up in a, a, well, many of you will know Sydney; it's not not unlike Auckland, really. And I grew up in the northern suburbs of, of Sydney, and so I had had very little interaction with Aboriginal people uh, until we went out there. But the point of the story is that they requested that from us, and then when we decided that the experience that we'd had was so rich, so deep, and so confronting, that it was very likely that as songwriters and performers we'd carried into something else, we were, I guess, mindful of not so much seeking permission, but really just sharing the fact that this was where we were heading, what we wanted to do with some of the people that we'd met, so that we felt like we were standing on reasonably firm ground. because. The history of um, white folk appropriating Indigenous culture and furthering their own careers, it still goes on, Mm -hmm. and we were pretty mindful of that. And I think it came out of relationships, basically, that we had relationships with Aboriginal musicians and with Aboriginal elders and leaders, and we consented together essentially to let the oils go and do their bit, and that's how it started.
0: And so th- th- that goes, um, goes to the issue about the kind of the use of the first person in songs like Beds Are Burning and the, the song about Uluru, um, whereby you had a bunch of white musicians um, and in Beds Are Burning there's kind of like, there's a first person narrative as if from an Aboriginal perspective as well as from a, then there's another narrative, another voice comes in which is from a European perspective which says, you know, we've got to hand it back. Um, and, but the first person Aboriginal perspective is, is you know, how can, we, uh, how can we sing while our beds are burning or da- dance while our beds are burning, right? Um, so that... that That seems to me um, a a, a kind of a tricky situation to be in, to be using a first-person narrative in that context. And so did you ever feel like um, kind of, you know, a bit unsure about how to do that?
1: No, not at all. Uh, I think, I mean, Rob came up with the verses and then we did the middle bit, which was the time has come to to give it back, which was was essentially it's a call and response type of song. And then you wrap it again with a chorus which is actually a shared chorus because one of the things that we believed very strongly and Aboriginal people that we had interacted with believed very strongly as well was that we, re- we really were partners in the future of Australia. It meant recognising and understanding the prior occupation and ownership of Australia as it was then by Aboriginal people, but historically we were clearly in the same place at the same time and so... This was a song which was really quite controversial in its day, not from the perspective perhaps that this Mm. question is, but more from the perspective that people were hearing a song about land rights, which had been very, very contentious in Australia on the radio for the first time.
0: Yeah, I mean, it it was an incredible song. I mean, to hear that song on popular culture, uh, someone saying on popular culture, we've got to give it back, was outrageous yeah you know? at the
1: time it certainly was yeah yeah, yeah it,
0: it really was um, I mean so maybe now's a good time to talk about the issue about then because um, one of one of the other um, uh, one of your other Kind of passions I guess is about conservation and, and, and the environment movement um, so th- one of the issues that's, um, that's come up recently for Greenpeace inter- interestingly enough is about the relationship between indigenous rights and conservation in relation to polar bears with Greenpeace um, and, and that's, um, that, that's an issue that you've had something to do with as well and I just wanted to explore that a little bit about how you match a concern with indigenous rights um, with a concern about environmental protection because usually they go together and it's yes. fine but what about when they don't?
1: Uh, when they don't, uh, I think that um, environment organisations and conservation organisations have an agenda and um, a field of interest which says whether you're, or, you're Maori or, or white fellow, whether you're Aboriginal person or European or whoever you might be, uh, we believe this bit of the environment needs to be protected for the following reasons and we're going to state it clearly. Um, whatever rights you have, we recognise and respect, but we also Uh, are going to essentially disagree perhaps about this particular matter if it's it's a conflict situation. But underneath that, I think, sits something which is much more important and necessary. And that is the question of, well, if you're contesting um, Indigenous people's rights to, say, for example, exploit a resource on the basis of wanting to protect the environment, and that contestation essentially potentially denies them livelihood or economic self-sufficiency then you've got to come up with some pretty good alternatives and be prepared to work with them, work with government, work with business, whatever, to ensure that that happens. So in those situations, you're right, it is difficult for conservation organisations because the ACF that I was president for a number of years in Australia had a very strong relationship with Aboriginal people because of the important campaigns for places like Kakadu National Park, which some people in here will know about, and, and Ezra and Uluru both places where ab- ab- Aboriginal occupation never ceased. Mm. you know. So um, the relationships have always been strong, but I think you've got to call it as you see it, respectfully, and also be very clear about questions of economic self-sufficiency and providing alternative models of development which don't see um, areas of the environment degraded any more than they need be.
0: Mm. And there was this... <coughs> Pardon me a similar issue in terms of dealing with um, Tasmanian forests, right? I mean, a parallel um, issue, which is if, as environmentalists, we're saying we don't want you to cut down the forest, um, how do you kind of square that circle with the labour movement? Um, and so the relationship between the small g green movement and the and the labour movement was one of the issues that you had to deal with. And of course, uh, in your book, you, you talk about the uh, there was... Um, some hostility or, or from the Construction, Forestry, Mining and Energy Union um, towards your candidacy when you originally proposed as, as a Labor politician. So how did, you, how did you deal with that conflict between the Labor movement and the Green movement, if you like, or the conservation movement?
1: Yeah, look, one of the reasons I wanted to write a memoir wasn't essentially to write a list of things that you've done, um, because I've been pretty busy uh, since I left uni and really got stuck into things. It was more to describe an experience which was a little bit unlike experiences that other people have when you sit in a certain career path and you make your way through it, whatever it is that you do, and you have intimate exchanges and intensities and ups and downs and you have great times and terrible times and you try and get that in writing. And I think anybody here, and certainly the writers that you've been listening to obviously are skillful at doing it, but when I was writing it, I thought to myself, it's actually not that hard to write about you know, your first 15 or 20 years, I reckon most people in the room, being lovers of literature, uh, I'm guessing would probably have... If they had the time, they could probably make a pretty good shot of it. The memories are really intense and the colours are rich and it's a fascinating time for you because it makes you who you are. But what you're describing, what I do also write about in the memoir, is when I entered formal um, politics and sort of essentially came into the mainstream there, on the one hand, I had uh, the union movement who were fearful uh, that I'd be too active... Um, an environment minister and opposed my entry in, and my joining Labor Party, uh, pretty vigorously it has to be said. <laughs> but then on the other hand, I had, I had some parts of, of uh, the green movement, not, not a lot, but some parts who were concerned that you know, suddenly I was a mainstream politician and I wouldn't do enough to protect the environment. And that's always a tension. Um, and it exists in this country. It exists just about everywhere that I've worked. And... It's a very interesting thing to work through in politics because politics essentially will be a compromise. You're never going to satisfy people here and the people there necessarily when you're trying to solve a problem where they've been at loggerheads, excuse the pun, for so long. Mm. And believe me, in Tasmania, they had been at loggerheads (laughs) for a long time. So eventually, uh, a solution was delivered. And again, it's a solution which is... One of the reasons I went into government was that, you know, government's the only people that can really write a cheque for $50 million to say, OK, we're going to retrain timber workers who may have left school um, without a lot of skill and a lot of training. This is all they've ever done. They've got families to look after. We do want to protect our old growth forests, our high conservation value areas, but if we suddenly do that, all of these people will be out of work, so how are we going to manage that?
0: Yeah, and so the, some, of the, some of the ways that you managed that was you came up with settlements, effectively, yes. um, for affected workers when, when you made some of those decisions. That's right. It, which kind of goes to, uh, I mean, the, the way that you describe it there is, because is, uh, the, we're talking about the transition in a way from Peter Garrett, the musician activist, um, to Peter Garrett, the politician, right? And and I think you know a lot of people were surprised or interested um, about how that was going to work out. And I, uh, what's come through when I've kind of been reading reading your stuff and listening to you talk is that, while well, you had these values around, uh, say, nuclear disarmament or environmental protection or whatever, or Aboriginal um, land rights, you also clear really valued the role of democracy and government as a good in and of itself, um, so when you found yourself in that position, you felt a responsibility to make sure that you actually looked at both sides of it that you gave the opportunity for different voices to be heard, and so some of the decisions you made weren't exactly what everyone was expecting right um, it, but that's because you believe in the value of government and good government and democracy is one of those things you didn't sing songs about it you know, no. hey, yeah I'm for good no, government no. and democracy it's not, uh, not going to get. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but that seems to be a, a critical value that you took into your time in, in government, right?
1: Yeah, no, that's right, and, and I, I mean, I think this is incredibly important, it's a, it's a really good observation, because I'm only speaking for Australia, I'm not speaking for, for Kiwi, although obviously I've spent a bit of time here, but I think that people sit back and, and particularly in our systems, and look at, look at the imperfections there, and they're frustrated that they're not delivering the sorts of things they'd like them to deliver. And they come to a conclusion that, A, a lot of politicians are, are, are inept or power-hungry or incompetent, whatever it might be, and that, and that the system, the government system, isn't able to deliver for them in a way that's satisfactory. In actual fact, uh, for Australians and New Zealanders, for the most part, and when I say for the most part, I'm not talking about people in the underclass, I'm not talking about recently arrived uh, refugees, I'm not talking about uh, some of our indigenous populations, but I am talking about for the most part... Experience standards of living um, and freedoms that are unparalleled in world history. There's never been um, societies that have given people as much opportunity as ours have. That's not to say that there aren't inequities. I'm not talking about the now. I'm not talking about what John Keyes did yesterday in the Panama Papers, although well, I'm happy to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure Russell will ask me a question about it now. <laughs> but I'm really talking about you know, if you look at the big sweep of history. And I'm positive about human endeavor. But as a, as I'm a lawyer by training, and as a lawyer by training, and having seen in my own country how difficult it was for a big reforming government um, in the '70s, the government of Gough Whitlam, a Labour government, to get its job done because of lack of discipline and for people running their own agendas, I believe that things like the separation of powers, the rule of law, um, respect for property rights, uncorruptibility in officialdom. And when you're in a political party and when you're a minister in the government, you, are actually, you, you do actually sw- swear an oath of loyalty. And it's that discipline of joining a team, which I was prepared to do, and it meant that I couldn't say anything and everything that I wanted and pretend that everything could be fixed overnight. I could certainly make strong arguments in the cabinet room, in the party room, and with my colleagues about those things. So my values didn't change. I lost some debates. I I was on the losing side of some debates in Mm -hmm. Cabinet. But my view about it was that the overall um, benefits and, I thought, betterment of conditions for Australian people as a whole, and clearly for the issues that meant something to me, could be advanced by me in that role. And I don't accept, and this is... I know it in your previous life, but I don't accept the characterisation that... um, So, for example, in Australia, our green opponents had of us that there was no real difference between Labour and Liberal... It's actually a massive difference from my perspective, and one of the reasons I went into government was that I deplored John Howard's prime ministership. I hated what he'd done to the country. We'd become, uh, we'd become a mean, uh, more narrow, more selfish country. He was obdurate on climate change and environment issues right to the very end, and I basically went into the parliament to shake that up. Um, I didn't go in because I wanted to be a leader, and I went in knowing that a lot of people would either be mystified by it or not like it, but I, I wanted to go in because I thought we could do things that the other side wouldn't do, and that's actually what happened. I mean, it was a rocky road because of the Rudd-Gillard leadership battles and the like, which some people might have seen from a distance, but it was certainly worth doing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, but so the, so just, uh, just kind of exploring that a little bit more. So... I mean, when you were doing the midnight oil stuff, um, you were affecting uh, kind of hearts and minds, if you like, the yeah. discourse, right, the narrative. Like you know, people like me, generations of people like we had our you know eyes open, changed the way we thought, and that kind of um, kind of lays the foundation for uh, a kind of uh, for change in a sense. And then you moved into government. Um, and, and then in government, you had a kind of very different role. And so it's like this it, kind of goes to theories of change. Like, yes, you know, it does. How, how do yeah. you, is it simply that you think, well, I was just doing, basically still trying to be a reformer, just in a different place? Yeah. Um, but which was more powerful in a sense, you, when you were a minister or when you had that narrative, you well, were able to change the discourse?
1: Yeah, look, I, I don't think in, in binary terms. And I think one of the things that we quite often do is think in binaries, you know, or black and white, or either yeah. or. The fact of the matter is that if you're going to have substantial change in modern democracies, you need to have the citizens who are agitating for change, who are calling for change. You need to have the debate that informs it. Uh, You need to have activists that are prepared to to go out and, and, and to activate for it. But they're generally calling upon someone to do something, and the entity that they're normally calling on to do something is the government. So um, I started as a classic activist, you know, protecting, trying to protect a bit of beach with other activists because untreated sewage was being poured onto the beach. As a band, the Oars got involved, and we helped people along the way, and we did various things. And eventually, I found myself going to Canberra to try and persuade the environment ministers of the time of the merits of the cause, whatever it might be. So I think there's a role for both. I don't think one is more or less important than the other. I think you need both to be in operation. And governments are big, complex things. In the media cycle, as you know very well, um, they can become risk averse. And my view was that a Labor government that was genuinely progressive was worth being a part of. And so that's why I went. But I'm out at the other end now, and I haven't changed at all. I, I'm, I'll probably be an. I probably would describe myself as an activist, you know, when I, when I came in here, activist artist, that's what I wrote in my thing at, at, uh, at Customs, and
0: I'll... <laughs> <laughs> you <know>. Did you? <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> and, and, and I think I'll continue to do it.
0: <laughs> I think I might start doing that, yeah, that's a good idea. <laughs> Not the artist, but I don't really do it, Yeah. Um, so, OK, then, so here's a challenge for you, like, um, if, if you think about, you know, what are, the, what are the locations for change? One of them is civil society, and you, yeah. you know, whether it's as a museo or, or an NGO, a leader of an NGO, like the Australian Conservation Foundation. Another one is government. Um, another site for contestation and, and change is business. Yes. Right. And so would you consider, in the right circumstances, um, uh, to be active in that space?
1: Yeah, I think that my answer is yes. I, I'm... I love new experiences, I really like exploring different things, and I like challenging myself, so of course I would. Um, I, I see change in, in this way, I think you're right in those things that you've identified, but I think there's a bigger and more important change that has to happen, and that's the change of heart. I think it was Tolstoy that said, you know, I met a lot of people that wanted to change the world, but I hadn't met that many that wanted to change their bad behaviour. Uh, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, you know guilty. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 I do think that's a part of it because we've got the mechanisms at our disposal. We do get to vote. We can organise freely. Uh, you're involved in an organisation that both you and I have been in, organised, which has done some incredible things for change. Uh, and yet, at the same time, I've seen. Uh, particularly as a local member of parliament in Australia, you know, I saw change happening at a very, a very local level and I thought it was powerful as well, whether it was a group of bums, you know, getting themselves organised to make sure that the tuck shop was repaired at the local primary school. So I don't differentiate so much on scale, I think it's more about intent. And I think that if we're capable of organising uh, for something we believe really strongly in, and that starts to permeate in different places, then change can happen, and quite often, of course, and you saw this with apartheid and New Zealand has a very proud history uh, in terms of its opposition to apartheid, you see that you know, the final wall falls down at a point where you've just about thrown everything at it that you can and you think, well, what is there left? I mean, Mandela had been in, on Robben Island for 27 years. There were trade sanctions. Whenever the, the spring box came to play, particularly in, in countries like Australia and, and even more so New Zealand, you know, there were riots. Uh, they'd become an international pariah, but they were digging in And it was, I think, eight or 10 years between the time that they played in Australia to when um, de Klerk and Mandela basically joined and Mandela becomes president. And the people were still saying, it's not going to happen in my lifetime, same as the falling of the Berlin Wall. The change is really interesting. It's very hard work over here. There's a lot of graft that happens along the way. You build alliances and you build your arguments and you have your political demands through the system. And then you're opposed by those who don't want to see it happen. The fossil fuel industry is a very good example. But then suddenly, bang, you know, it happens.
0: So where does that leave your previous argument, though, about um, movement versus government, if you like? Because kind of what you described there in terms of the anti-apartheid change was really all the, the heavy lifting was done by the movement and civil society and kind of governments in the end just kind of like fell over because everyone had moved. I mean... Um, and kind of resisted probably, you know, for a long time. I mean, even though we say New Zealand, I mean, there were a lot of New Zealand governments that don't have a proud record on apartheid. No, um, same in Australia. Yeah. So, I mean, it's like then in terms of the agency for change, it didn't really come from government.
1: Well, I don't quite agree with that assessment. Um, I think what happens is that... But, but, but I agree that governments were the last to fall. And that's often the case. Um, but they have to. You know, they, ha- they have to change as well. And, of course, there are challenges in countries where your government's obdurate uh, or where you don't think there are are fair alternatives. But I'm Churchillian on this. as I I said to you when we're backstage, I'm not talking about in other ways, but it's the least perfect but the best method that we still have. And in actual fact, of course, um, when you're in government or when you're involved in formal politics, you realise that people have opinions in these institutions as well and they express them in the same way diplomatic... uh, diplomats and others, and, and in trade issues and the like. This stuff's very dry and in some ways pretty boring, but it's actually how the world works at that level. Governments have a res- much greater responsibility to open themselves up to civil society and not to, not to have a narrow gate through which people can come. And the, the, the maniacal, ridiculous kind of perversions that we've seen in the American system, which I happen to think is a very good system and was designed by very smart people, has been subverted by the fact that money has come to buy access and buy influence in, in legislative. So you need to reform those things, but, you, you, but, but by the same token, an elected constituent body that represents the will of the people as expressed at a certain time is ultimately also an agent for change, even if sometimes they're reluctant. Mm.
0: What, one of the things that I really liked about the book was um, that... because well, all that's true. When you read most history, it's like, you know, a history of government. Really, government decided to do this or that or whatever, right? I mean, in a lot of history of what government's done are written by people who've been in government, so they see it like that. Um, but my analysis, kind of as a political scientist whatever, would be to say actually it's the mass movements that are critical to producing all this change, but very seldom do you read a history of change when something good happens, where everyone goes, yeah, the mass movement created this huge pressure and eventually the government fell over. Whereas your book kind of has a bit of balance in it, so there's your experience in government but there's also your experience as an activist. Was that one of your aims in writing the book was to kind of validate both sides of what you had done?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, It's it's a spot on question. I did want to say to people, this is how we created change in Australia, the things, the communities and the people that I was involved in, and this is how change manifested itself when I was in government. Mm. There are different kinds of change. I mean, a classic example, I was the education minister when Julie Gillard was prime minister. We wanted to change the education system, the way that education was funded. Only a government can do that, uh, you know, currently, and we did it. Um it's been resisted to some extent by the Tories subsequently, but the, the, the structure of the way in which we fund student learning in Australia has changed. Now, the teachers' unions... And academics and parents' organisations and things were incredibly important in that. I mean, they really were, were behind um, government and, and the Prime Minister and myself trying to make that happen. Mm. But governments can only make it happen. On the other hand, take something like um, campaigns around preserving and protecting a piece of important biodiversity. Governments don't want to know about it. <laughs> they don't want the agitation. They're, you know, they'll, they'll run a mile around those things. Mm. Uh, and so you really need people out there to get involved in it. So it's not again, it's not an either or proposition. It's both.
0: Yeah. Okay. Um, just to just to get into Gonski then, because you know, for people who don't know that there's <laughs> this is amazing um, the reform that was introduced that when you were the minister, Julia started, Julia Gillard um, started it, and then you picked it up and and followed it through and finally got it implemented. And they, it's called the Gonski reform, um, which. Always sound really strange to me, whatever. Um, Because someone wrote a report called Gonski, right? Um, And and so this is, I think, a very interesting comparison between Australia and New Zealand. When I was growing up in Australia, everyone went to the same schools, pretty much. Um, There was a private school network, but it wasn't huge. By the time my brothers and sisters sent their kids to school, basically middle class people didn't go near public education anymore. It was over. And so you had a complete two-tier system. And I don't think New Zealand has got to that extent. Um, It's always a risk, but it hasn't got there. And and so I think that, that what you're trying to do is essentially turn the clock back, in a sense to kind of make public education in Australia once again the place where middle-class people go? Is, was that kind of in, in a sense at the, uh, at the it, heart of it?
1: Yeah, look, in part, and, and your, your assessment about the two education systems is pretty accurate, and, and I know when we were doing the reform and I had a bit to do with um, the government here, I thought, this system's pretty good, excuse me. So really the, the question is, and it's a question that's right at the heart of how modern democracies are going to survive what are the kinds of skills and attributes that you need to provide for young people? Um, it's not really just about reading and writing, although they need to have those basic skills. They need to have a set of other skills that enable them to be, have empathy, to understand their civic responsibilities, to have been opened up for, their, to, for creativity, so that when they do work, they can work in an imaginative way, in a collaborative way, and in an innovative way, and our school system in Australia, as well as being bifurcated with a lot of people sending their kids to private schools, particularly at the secondary level, had our kids not being able to read and write well, but also not having this other range of skills and developing this range of skills. The example that's often given is Finland, uh, whose kids perform very well in tests, but also has remodelled itself as a nation, where education's at the heart of what they do. But, of course, it didn't happen overnight in Finland. You know, they decided it after the scarring experience of World War II. And the Russian bear had been right there. And they thought, wow, you know, we are are a vulnerable nation. How do we deal with that vulnerability? We make sure that education becomes literally a national priority for us. And here, the question is that no child, no matter what their background or their upbringing, should be denied that opportunity to be well-educated, which, of course, is what happens in a private system where the money is. So we're all on the bell curve... Some of us are super bright and smart and capable academically here, and others sit along there. We've all got a different range of other skills. But every child along the bell curve should get the same application of resources and teaching skill. But in Australia, we were losing about a third of our kids because they weren't getting it. So that was at the heart of the reform. It did have a funny name. <laughs> uh, and interestingly for me, I had very little to do with education before. I thought I was going to be the environment minister, and then I thought I was going to get the boot. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, and the next thing I knew, I, I had that position. And as uh, for some of you who might have come to the opening event uh, where we had our presentations with the other writers, of course, in the background, and I write about it a bit in the book, it's not all about politics, by the way, was um, Mr Rudd challenging um, Julie Gillard again at the very time that we were trying to get all these education reforms and the bills through the parliament, mm-hmm. uh, and we made it by 24 hours.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. One of the kind of... So, so, yeah, that was an amazing piece of the book. Is like, yeah, it's like you could see the door was coming oh, down and you just, kind of just got through right at the end. Well, yeah.
1: honestly, I cannot tell you because um, I, I, most of my staff in my education portfolio were women. And uh, so we had a women... We had, we had, Quentin Bryce was the Governor-General. Julia Gillard was the Prime Minister. The secretary of my department um, was, was, uh, was a woman. My Chief of Staff and my Deputy Chief of Staff as well. And then there was a smattering of the sexes, but we were working 17 hours a day, literally. I mean, we just, people weren't sleeping. And when that moment came, I came back into the office, and you know, I was expecting the champagne and the cheers and the phones ringing. People were just literally slumped on the floor. It's over. I think some of them haven't recovered since. I'm not sure that I have.
0: There it, it, it was interesting your um, your relationship with Julia Gillard that came through that because on the one hand um, like so you clearly had some differences with her like the, the uranium mine debate um, yeah. where about sending uranium to India where she was on one side and you were, you were on the other and yet you also. Clearly respected her role and what she did, and that, that was kind of like uh, you seem to be have poli- have some political distance from her, like you know, so some commonality, like the Gonski scuff, obviously you were totally aligned, but other things perhaps you're a bit further apart. But nonetheless, what you thought as her of her as a leader seemed to dis- you seemed to think she was playing a good role as a leader. Is is that a fair fair judgment of, w- yeah, of how you is. put it together?
1: Yeah, it is. I think that uh, the party made the decision to. Um, to choose another leader because they felt that uh, the business of government had become unstable uh, under Rudd, and I certainly um, f- had that, felt that as well, so I strongly supported a change. Um, Julia was uh, a much more consultative leader and somebody who had the organisational skills to manage um, Government and to, to and to deliver a program and get legislation through. That. I mean, that's basically what what you get a shot at it. Is it going to last two, three years? If you're lucky, you might get six years or more. You want to get these bills through. Uh, and in our case, we did have a lot of things on our agenda. We had climate change and the carbon scheme. We had a national disability insurance scheme. We don't. I'm not quite sure how that works here, but we a lot of um, terrible problems for f- families with kids with on the aut- autism spectrum and the like, getting them into the school system an NBN broadband network uh, and a range of other things, but they're pretty big reforms, structural reforms, and we were really at sea with some of them in the first term. And I found Julia more consultative and uh, I thought that the treatment that she received, particularly at the hands of some sections of the press, was, you know, I, I found very unsettling and, and I was very unhappy about it. Mm. Uh, as, an, as, a, as an Australian, I thought there was a lot of latent misogyny at place, in the way in which she was treated and, uh, no, it's true and, I mean, you know, I saw it first hand what it's like for someone who had to get up at six o'clock in the morning and, you know, the the newspapers and the morning talk shows are already screaming for blood and I never saw her wilt under pressure, you know, she she was always gracious and composed um, and I thought she served the country and the party incredibly
0: well. Um, so so one, of the, one of the, obviously, the big issues was climate change and getting the, the carbon tax or the carbon pollution reduction scheme and, and all the debates around that. Um, but kind of where we've got to uh, at, at the end of all of that is that, you know, you, Australia is still really at sea in terms of its climate change policy. And, and looking at it from a distance, the, the, the cognitive dissonance of watching the coral reef have this massive bleaching event at the same time as the Queensland government approves a massive coal mine, yes. I mean, it, it, you know, I, is that something that's kind of more broad within Australia, the cognitive dissonance, or people just somehow disconnect the two? Like, what's your take on why, why are those two things happening well, at the same time? Russell, you're a
1: Queenslander.
0: Help me. <laughs> Formally. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: Uh, look, um, the bleaching event on the reef was, was, was terrible. Um, it was to be expected. And it's a consequence of, of pollution that's being produced uh, and temperature increase that we're seeing, carbonification of, of water temperatures in particular. And looking after the reef is our number one um, national international priority because um, other, than, other than rainforests in, in Central and South America, it's the most visible sign of... You know, the bounty of nature, if you like. You can see it from outer space. The astronauts used to talk about it because they could see it. Um, huge, hugely important for us in terms of the economy of Queensland. Uh, and I, I, I oppose that decision that the Queensland government... By the way, I don't think that coal mine's going to go ahead. Yeah, yeah, um, <laughs> I just don't think it will. Uh, I think, but, but that dissonance, I think, runs through our politics because Australia has, is a country which, as many people would know traditionally has relied on its export of of, um, resources and raw materials for um, some of its economic buoyancy, not to the extent that people think, Mm. but it's still there. And I think we're just hitting crunch time, and I think that the work that your organisation and others are doing to really continue to draw attention to this weird kind of uh, juncture point is very important. I happen to think that the, the market will deal with coal, and an economy. I think China is going to be the driver of that change. Mm-hmm. Um, it's such a powerful economy, it's such a pervasive influence on it. There are many issues around China's domination of the 21st century which are quite challenging. Human rights issues, military issues, and strategic issues in, 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 are the most important. Mm-hmm. But technologically, they've made a call. They are going towards renewables. Of course, they're still building power stations to provide power for many millions of people, but eventually, solar, renewables, geothermal and the like will take over and the, the financial payoffs much better ultimately for, for that investment. So I think the market will get us there, but I think it's a terrible um, test of timing because we've got to hold emissions as much as we can, and there's no sign that that's going to happen soon. Mm. It,
0: it, I'm, I'm interested in exploring the China stuff a bit more if we can. But I, ju- I just want to uh, just 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 um, just explore the the change stuff a little bit more. Like, so when Anastasia Palaszczuk, the Premier of Queensland, um, announced that why she's supporting the mine, she talked about jobs, basically, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Um, in <laughs> okay, uh, no jobs on a dead planet, but whatever. Um, <laughs> it, and, and, and one of the ways that we've tried to counter that in the small G green movement and, and conservationists more generally is we've said all the economic arguments in favour of renewables and all the rest yes, of it. That's right. Um, and, and, you know, we've been pretty active and a lot of people yeah. have been promoting all of the economics around sustainability. Um, but is it, have we got the, the wrong end of the stick, in a sense? Like, actually, should we have been promoting the kind of the ethics, the values, and, and like, actually not tried to have the fight on the economics and the jobs? <coughs> and I'm as guilty of this as anyone else, well, but I do wonder sometimes whether we've made the right decision to try to fight it on the economics and the jobs, whether we should just go, actually, uh, yeah, this is about Russell, survival. And
1: I, I think this is... Um, I mean, if, if we didn't have a, a room full of all you great uh, mob of people that have come out to listen to us yarning... This this would be the moment when I say, let's sit right on this, you know, because this is a really important point. I'm not going to say it anyway. Uh, I feel this very strongly. Um, When we went into government, and I'd previously been uh, the president of kind of the equivalent of Forest and Bird, I think, is your organisation here. But we argued about significantly reducing greenhouse gas emissions and taking on climate change from two perspectives. One was the moral perspective. that you can't consign future generations to a warming planet, and the second were the environmental reasons. What are the impacts of this going to be? And in some ways, and I certainly felt this when I was writing my memoir, and now as I'm out of being a formal politician, I've got a bit more space to think, and my creative life is revving up again, and I, and I love the fact that that's happening.
0: Is that- You just got everyone really excited then? Everyone thought about, you know, <laughs> the, the band's coming back together. Well, <laughs> it, look, it looks like it is, but- <laughs> So, so. <laughs>
1: But it's the the imagination, it's it's, in our imagination, we have to be be able to imagine the kind of world that we want to live in, that we want our kids to live in. We really need to be able to summons that up, and we need to be able to share that. And we need to talk about what our fundamental human responses are to the things that we're doing. The economics arguments are important. You need to have them to, to counter them. But I do agree with you. So when we went into government, we were putting moral argument. I mean, Rudd said addressing climate change is the greatest moral challenge of our time. That was, as Prime Minister of Australia, yeah. that's what yeah. he said. And our polling figures showed consistently through that time that we had the support of the majority of Australians for our actions on climate change. As soon as we fell into a discussion about electricity prices, renewables, you know, economic transformations, but got really down into the weeds of an economic discussion... We, we saw the polling figures come back. Now, um, you know, polls, 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 but I think the point that you make is a really valid one. And I think there's a big challenge for all of us, wh- whatever uh, we do in, and whatever we're doing in community, to think about this in another way. I certainly think about it um, in the way in which I see the impact it has on Pacific Islanders, and New Zealanders would be very aware of that. You've got many people from those places living here or visiting. But I also see it from what I think is, is is the sort of this underlying moral challenge. And that is that mostly you could say that you will do there'll be trade-offs. We make trade-offs as societies and communities, you make trade-offs with families, you make trade-offs in work. Because you think by making that trade-off later on it'll be better for somebody, you know? And we're making trade-offs, we've made trade-offs in the environment debate around increasing economic growth and increasing standards of living by saying it, but if we do that, at least we, we, sh- we, we know that everybody's well off. and At the same time, we're hopeful that we'll come up with strategies and technologies that will lessen the impact of human activity on the planet. Now, we're just about to pass the point of no return, and the trade-offs that we're making are far too great. So we then become a culpable generation who need to examine ourselves very closely, which is why climate change is through my book, not as I'm not trying to preach to people, and it was why, when I got up in the caucus, the first time in the Labor caucus, I talked about climate change. Everyone came on to me and said, OK, you've talked about climate change, we get it, OK, fine, we knew that's what you were. And then in my first speech, and said, "Why do you keep on banging on about climate change? "Okay, yeah. well, actually, you need to think about, I think we need to think about these things a bit more deeply. So I'm in agreement with you posing this question. I don't have all the answers, mm. but I think it's something which we really need to stir up.
0: Do we need to disrupt the narrative of progress? Sorry. Like at the beginning, you kind of talked about you were a believer, or almost—you didn't quite say it like this—but a, a narrative of human progress, right? Yeah. Um, and and is 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 that which is essentially a you know a pretty anthropocentric kind of view, which is fine. Um, but it, but it, is that is that one of the problems itself? Is is that anthropocentrism? If we're going to solve this thing, do we need to see ourselves as a small part of a big thing, rather than this kind of all you know this thing which has, you know got this kind of uh, this trajectory of? Human Human progress and all the rest of it, is that what we need to change in terms of our mindsets? It can't be solved by a kind of um, a smaller argument, it has to be a bigger way of seeing it?
1: I don't know. Uh, I think it does. Um, I don't subscribe to, I think, the view that is put by some philosophers and thinkers um, about humans and that humans essentially are so all-dominating that they are capable only of doing harm until they rethink what they're doing. Uh, I think that there's much that we can be proud of in human history and I think that... Let's jump across to considering the things of great beauty um, or um, great historical moments, great acts of bravery, great literature, you know, the, the, the wonderful things that humans are capable of. And then at the same time we can look at you know, Auschwitz and Treblinka, and we go, how do we reconcile this within one species? You know, how, how is the species capable of these two things? And I think part of the answer is that um, we, we are much more a communicative, formulating, thinking, articulating, and also very capable of constructing arguments to defend our position, species than, than, than any other, and we are all-dominating and all-pervasive on the planet, So, yes, we do in part have to rethink some of our central myths and creation myths, I think that's true, or at least re-understand them in the light of where we are now, but I think we just have to take responsibility, you know, and it's that ethical position of taking responsibility that makes the difference. So the people who got the vote for women were women that went out and chained themselves to the steps of, of Parliament House, who were prepared to go to jail. The people who stopped apartheid were the ones who stepped out first, and you're in that tradition, your organisation, there'll be people in this room who are as well. Now um, I don't think it means saying humans you know, are hopeless and they can't do it. I think it means saying, look at what we've been able to do in the past, we just need to do some of it better. Mm.
0: It's a very um, uh, enlightenment uh, kind of man position, right? I mean, put the enlightenment position you, that you're kind of arguing because yes. you, you are essentially arguing that this thing, that the, the kind of tools that the enlightenment you know has given us, um, which can be so destructive, um, can also be the tools of solutions. And, Absolutely, and, and that's a, and that's the kind of fundamental optimism that you have in your book Correct. as well as like and that that's your optimistic view of the world. That's right, and and uh, I'm not. I, I, Foucault, I could, you know,
1: I'll put him in the bin. Foucault, put Foucault in the bin? In the bin. Yeah, he's, he's in.
0: <coughs> Any defenders of Foucault here?
1: <laughs> um, bl- <laughs> the blank slate, you know, this blank slate idea, it's in the bin. Right. Um, the noble savage, it's in the bin, you know. Um, positivism, okay. Um, I'm not trying to be facile, but, I, but you're right. My interaction with. Um, with Aboriginal people and Aboriginal communities has been one of the most important learning experiences of my life, and I feel very privileged to have had those insights, uh, and they continue to this time. But what it's enabled, what's given me just a brief um, glimpse into is the way in which human communities can organise themselves, and including the way Aboriginal people organise themselves prior to the arrival of the Europeans in Australia. And, of course, if you asked people there about... It's not that we can undo what's happened, but where would they want to be now? They would want to take the best of what they had and the best of what we have. And they would want to bring them together and creatively mould them and then live their lives in that way. And I believe the same. I don't accept everything about the Enlightenment was perfect by any stretch of the imagination. But there is a reason why many people want to come to the countries that we live in. There is a reason why Canada. Uh, New Zealand, Australia are uh, amongst the most highly sought-after destinations on the planet. I'm not talking about asylum seekers only. I'm talking about people who queue up, who are prepared to move from the country they live in with their friends, their families, their jobs, their whatevers, to come to another country to live. The reason they want to do that is because the existence of political freedom, of the provision by the state, of of the basics of of, um, education and health and so on and so forth, Um, a sense of certainty, a lack of fear that uh, just because they think a certain way, they look a certain way, or they believe in a certain God, they'll be shot or taken behind uh, into a darkened room and beaten up, uh, are, are all but gone. Those things are essentially the fruits of the Enlightenment. And they exist within our political systems imperfectly. And yes, we need to think past it into something better, but that's partly a consequence of my
0: optimism. But, but if you think about the societies which we're most familiar with, so um, Australia, New Zealand, United States, Canada, I mean, I'm mean, i sure people here are familiar with many others, um, but those kind of societies, what you've got there is a cross between the Enlightenment and colonisation, right? So you've kind of got these very unusual societies. They're not like European societies because of the experience of colonisation. And, and, and if you were to compare the kind of record on sustainability of, say, Sweden, everyone picks Sweden, right? Ah, Sweden. Um, to, to compare it to, say, Australia and New Zealand, or the United States, um, or Canada, I mean, they, they do seem to be doing a much better job. Is there something about the, the colonisation experience that does something to the Enlightenment that creates a lot of turbulence in these societies? Yeah,
1: it's a good question. I was actually going to include the Scandinavian countries, actually, because I think they, their model is a very good one in some ways. Um, I mean, they get lucky too, remember? They had some great philosophers... They had a couple of wars which were terrible wars but which really forced them to think through, you know, what, what, what do we want our, our countries to be like? And, of course, in Norway's case, uh, they had a lot of money from North Sea oil. Yeah. But um, your point about colonisation is very well made and it's this conquering ethic thing that, that, that sort of comes with colonisation mm. and the subjugation of, of, of original inhabitants... Complete lack of understanding about the place that you 're in, you don 't know what that tree is about, so you just chop it down, etc, etc, that has created um, a set of legacies that we 're still dealing with, but they 're not fatal legacies and you know to be clear about it, uh, I mean Jared Diamond, who some people will have read his work and others have made it pretty clear I mean one way of looking at the world is it is a, it is a history of colonization of sorts um, coming out from certain parts in Um, Central Asia and and Africa and and the Middle East. And I think humans have always been essentially yearning, searching, you know, on the move. That's not going to change.
0: I think that's... um I guess that's true, but I mean, it, it, it's kind of it's, it, it, just going back to the Enlightenment thing about, and you, you kind of brought up Aboriginal societies, right? What we know about Aboriginal societies is that they had achieved a, a sustainability, right, the, the way of, of living. It might have been that the original impact on Australia was resulted, you know, um, Tim, Flannery, Tim Flannery would say it resulted in the destruction of some of the megafauna, um, but over time, living there for 40,000 years or whatever, it became a sustainable um, kind of interaction. Do we have an example of an Enlightenment society? And, you know, if we say Aboriginal society wasn't informed by the Enlightenment, you know, that's obviously a controversial statement, but let's just put that to one side and say, have we got an example of an Enlightenment society which has been as sustainable as Aboriginal society?
1: No, we don't, but
0: it depends... And that's it our it challenge, right?
1: Yeah, but, it de- but, but here I think we have to be very clear about is it sustainability in and of itself, that we're talking about and the measurement of sustainability? Or are we really talking about sustainability and the conditions under which people live? Um, Because there aren't too many Aboriginal people that I know who would want to live in the way that they lived before. It was very hard. Um, They were literally at, at at the behest of the elements. They had a rich and deep cosmology and from our understandings of it and and from what Aboriginal people tell us and um, and myths and stories and anthropological research and so on and so forth, it was a a complex and verbally literate society. But it was also a very tough society. Um, It wasn't one where uh, the sorts of... Well, the the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights didn't apply. Let me put it sort of as bluntly as that. And I'm not trying to be silly or, or, or critical. It just didn't. It was a different kind of society. People had rights and reciprocal obligations, and they respected them, but they, but, but they, they weren't as egalitarian as, as perhaps people might think. And for Aboriginal people, um, the business of simply securing their, their, their food and their shelter and dealing with complex interactions with others, quite often um, warring interactions with others, pretty much took up all of their time. And it's a fascinating question. It's a fascinating question for our Aboriginal friends and for for people I know well as to the fact that 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 state stayed in the way that it did for so long. That in itself, though, is very different from the question of what happened to their society when we arrived. That is awful and horrible. That needs to be addressed still by us as Australians, by the the settler Australia or, or, or however you want to describe us. But sustainability is is a different matter altogether, in as much as we now have all these tools at our disposal, um, which essentially come, I think, pretty much from the invention of the steam engine, sort of really been since then, where we've been able to save labour by using energy. And of course, the rational choice of any person, uh, Aboriginal, you and I, anybody else who it might be, was, well, if I've got to get to the top of that mountain and I can take this four-wheel drive, I'll take the four-wheel drive. (laughs) I won't, you know, drag the stuff up the mountain. I mean, it's just this is how it works. And I think that the challenge for us has been this idea about su- sufficiency. What is sufficiency for us? Um, we've got inbuilt, strong genetic drives, parents will know it, um, to provide for our children. And, and why do Western families provide more for their kids than what they need? And they, rationally, they know that they're providing more for them than they need. They're probably giving them more food that they need some of the time. Why do people eat more than they need to at times? Genetically, it's inside of us. We're not sure that this won't be the last opportunity we get, that we don't think the last meal's around the corner. So our, my own view is um, our, our evolution as a species is lagging behind the technological developments and the ethical necessities that we have to face to reconcile this whole question of using up so much energy at such a speed that we imperil sustainability. Mm.
0: All right, it's um, we, the clock up there says five minutes to go. Um, <clears throat> I've yacked heaps. So, um, if there's anyone out there who's got like a burning question, um, this is probably the this is your last chance. Um, <laughs> sorry about that. Uh, so, uh, <clears throat> is there anyone there who's got a, a burning question? This is there's five minutes to go. Um, feel free to grab a mic. If not, well, while that's happening, I've got, I've got, a, I've got a, a slightly lighter-hearted question. When you're, like, doing the midnight oil stuff, right, it, was, um, it looked like catharsis, like your behavior on stage, right? I mean, you were, you know, it was, you know, it was, like, energetic. You were dancing, you were shouting, you were singing, it was, you sweat, yeah. like, a... I was having fun. Do you, that kind of catharsis, that, that experience, like there's nothing else, almost nothing else that one sees in, in everyday life that's anything like that. No. How did you replace it? Like, what happened when you stopped doing no. it? <laughs> well, I got itchy feet.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, look, I think the thing for me about performance and being a, someone who's worked as a performance artist and who will again is that you've got to learn to switch your brain off. Uh, and not think about what it is you're doing and maybe not necessarily how silly you look, but for me it was really much a case of just feeling the music behind me and thinking, I love the sound of this and I'm going to move to it. That became part of the way that Midnight Oil presented itself, but it wasn't self-conscious. It wasn't um, articulated or worked out or choreographed, I guess is the word I'm looking for. But it was very cathartic, there's no doubt about it. Uh, So, yeah, I walk around at night a lot. (laughs) (laughs)
0: there's a question over here.
1: Yes, hi. Uh, Pete, you're a rock star, right? I think everybody agrees. You know, as a friend of mine from the Hokiang would say, you rock your shit. So we've been in the habit of talking about New Zealand as a rock star economy, but for those people that are thinking, you'd have to have rocks in your head to think that we're a rock star economy. But if the government here had an enlightenment and thought, why don't we go and ask Pete how we could organize ourselves better? You know, the operating system's not working for a lot of people as we all know. So, if that did transpire, what would be your sort of little view of, or we don't have a lot of time, your short view of what the wiring diagram might look like, and what would be the first thing you would do if you were given that opportunity? <laughs> it's, a re- <laughs> it's, it's a really good question, um, and these are the kind of questions I'm never, never dumb enough to answer. But. But, I mean, I think to, to take the gentleman's question a bit more seriously, you've got to transform yourself to a low-carbon economy. I think that's the most important thing. Yeah. And I think, you'll, I think you can do it. I think you're very well placed to do it. Mm. Yeah, over here. Oh, I've got a methodological, uh, methodological question. Um, just if you 're trying to bring about change, some people talk about tempered radicalism, but you were talking before about women you know to get the vote they had to chain themselves and do quite radical things um, what was what what's the approach you'd recommend <laughs> <laughs> you. well no this is a re- this is a really good question and uh, I actually think that for most of us um, if we 're reasonably healthy and can look after ourselves, are able to provide for ourselves, then in our lives, in the spectrum of our lives, whatever age we are, there will be opportunities to participate and to create change. And really, to be absolutely blunt with it, and I'm thinking about myself, even though I have been involved in a lot of stuff, I could have been involved in a lot more. So the only thing that really holds you back is yourself. And I quite often get young people asking me, and it's you know, I really appreciate the fact that they think enough about this strange older person that they would ask them the question, how should I, or whatever? how can I do it, or where's my next step? Or or other people who might be seeking early retirement, they retire, say, in their late 40s or or their early 50s, and they then want to make a contribution. I think this is fantastic. But I never prescribe to them what it is they should do. Because firstly, I don't think it's my place to do it. I don't know them well enough. I don't know their situation. But secondly, actually, me prescribing it is not going to help them find them what it is that they should do it's them spending that quiet moment sitting down and thinking okay like maslow's hierarchy of needs you know at the top of it are air and water and then shelter and then human engagement the sorts of things that we all should be looking after and caring about and that we're fighting for what are the things that are at the top of my hierarchy of change it's that thing over there. there is the thing that really ro- ro- you know, floats my boat, gets me turned up to 11. Where around in my suburb, my home, my life, my country, are other people doing something about that? Or is, where, where does that flare up? Or where is it happening? What, what's going on with it? I'll go over there and I'll bring my set of skills. What are my skills? I'm patient. I'm very good at IT. Um, I don't mind doing the washing out when everybody else has gone home. I can write well. It doesn't really matter what your skill set is. You're in the place where you're meant to do the change. And the great thing about being a poly, for me, was that I had the idea of change, Russell, that you and I and some people here would know, which is organisations that are set up for change. Greenpeace, it's a great change organisation. And yet, in Maroubra, in Sydney, uh, that some of you will know, is quite close to the airport, I found a tiny little community group that was set up that were wanting to change the situation for single mums in Maroubra, and that's what they were doing. So I think it's about your internal personal choices, and I think there's always something that people can find to do to do the change, and then of course, ultimately, the more people who are doing it, the more change there is.
0: And on on that note, um, we have to wrap it up. We're over time, so terribly sorry, but we have run out of time. Um, Put your hands together for Peter Garrett. Thanks, mate. Thank you. Our 2016 Auckland Writers' Festival podcast series is proudly powered by Spark. You can find a range of other talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, on SoundCloud or on our website,
1: writersfestival.co.nz.